Well, last week I, uh, I preached a, a message entitled, How to Master the Bible. And uh, in that message, I encouraged all of you with a, a vision of mastering the Bible for yourself. That is, knowing what the Bible says, where it says it, and how it says it. Right? Being able to, to think God's thoughts after Him. That's really our, our aim when we talk about mastering the Bible. The, the aim ultimately right, is that we'd master the Bible so the Bible ultimately then would master us. That, that we would submit to what, what it says and we believe it and trust it, that it would dominate our life and to guide us to Christ. Um, that you would believe in what the Scriptures speak about how God loves us and cares for us and sent His only Son to die for us, that we might be made right with Him and live and know Him eternally with Him. And I believe, just about mastering the Bible, that the better you master the Bible and the deeper you know it and the more you love it, the greater will be your confidence in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. It will lead to a stabler life, a more steady life that's resolute through the trials of life. And last week, then, I challenged you to be intentional about your efforts to master the Bible. Um, and I said, if you, if you have a plan of how you're going about mastering the Bible for yourself, you have at it, and um, you go and you stay on your plan, I support you 100%. If you've got some Bible study that's working for you, great. If you found some reading plan, or you're focusing on one book of the Bible, going to the next book of the Bible, wonderful, whatever it is. If you've got some systematic reading through some, some scriptures, or some Christian books even, just whatever is working for you. If you've got a plan, then go ahead. But if you don't have a plan to master the Bible, I just encourage you one little piece of advice. I just encouraged you last week to read the Bible. Uh, because really, the only way you're going to master the Bible is to read the Bible. Just think about playing piano. If you ever want to master playing the piano, do you think you can do so by, uh, by um, reading books about playing the piano? Or maybe watching right, some great piano player right, play their tunes? Could you master the, bio, the piano by that? You can't. Or, or could you master the game of tennis, right? Through, through watching some video instructions or through some reading some book. You can't. You gotta play tennis. Could you master pottery by just watching the pottery? Potter, potter do his hand at the wheel? You, you can't. You gotta do it yourself. And so also the, if you master the Bible, you need to master the Bible by doing it yourself. And by reading the Bible for yourself. And no, it's not reading books about the Bible. It's not listening to sermons based on the Bible. It's not watching Bible videos online. It's not memorizing a bunch of Bible verses you can quote the Bible. And those things are helpful, and those things are supplementary, certainly. But if you want to master the Bible, you need to read the Bible for yourself. Charles Spurgeon said it well. He says, visit many books, but live in the Bible. I just encourage you that same thing, right? Live in many books, but uh, read many books, but live in the Bible. And um, so what I did was I, I presented to you a plan of something I did last year of how I approached uh, some men individually and told them, I believe 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, which says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I approached several men. I, I just said, uh, you know, the, I believe this verse. And I believe that these verses say that to be equipped for every good work, 
the best way to do that is let all Scripture have its effect upon our lives. And then I invited them just to read through the Bible with me. We'd have a schedule we'd keep, and then once a week we'd meet together for an hour for accountability and encouragement and just talk about what we read just that past week. And and we'll also work to summarize each chapter in the Bible so we read it just to kind of force us to to, to read it more slowly, just kind of focus on, on what we have there. And the ultimate aim would be to create a, a booklet of some types with a, a one, one page per book of the Bible, just kind of like this own little summary that you have done that you would then review and use it the rest of your life, that you would be able to have it and edit it and constantly understand what is the, um, the Bible talking about. So since January, right, we have kept pace of reading through the scriptures together, talking about it once per week. I don't think we've missed all week, all year long. Uh, when I've been on vacation, I've, I've, I've missed, um, but they continued on and it's worked out just fine. Uh, Vaughn was also meeting with some wives as well. So it wasn't just a guy's thing. Women were involved as well. And, and last week I had a couple of men share their testimony of just their experiences of reading through the, the scriptures together. And so this Sunday morning, I'd like to invite Andy and Courtney to come up and just Tell us about your experience of, of what you experienced reading through the scriptures this year in this, this sort of way. So why don't you come up? Good morning. Uh, for those of you who have not met us before, I'm Andy Kaiser, and this is my wife, Courtney. Uh, and we have uh, been each in a group this year reading through the entirety of the Bible. Um, prior to this year, neither of us had read through the Bible cover to cover before And I'm very proud to say um, we, in short three weeks here or so, will have completed that, and uh, we're both very proud of that. Now, prior to this year, um, I had tried to read through the Bible many times before. Um, Unfortunately, reading is not a passion of mine. You ask my mom, and she will still tell you that I am illiterate. Um, So (laughs) that hasn't helped. Um, what I was lacking, however, was accountability. Um, those times I had read, tried to read through the Bible before, I'd get it through the first couple books, and then uh, the books of law would hit me like a brick wall, and I would stop. Um, but with the accountability of having a group, uh, in my case of men, to read it with, um, to meet with on a week-to-week basis, uh, they held me accountable to that, and we pushed through and the way that we broke it up between New Testament uh, and Old Testament, um, Proverbs and Psalms, we're able to chop it up piece by piece, get through and really take in what the message of the Bible is. Um, Additionally, having your wife 15 or 20 feet away in a different room was also very helpful uh, for us, for me specifically, uh, to have that accountability piece where we were able to talk about what we had read over uh, that hour every week, um, or the, the meeting that we had had, and then the, just a whole week of scripture we were able to take in. So this, this year has been wonderful. It has been such a blessing to be able to get through the entirety of the Bible, and that's something that I am very proud of. All right, I'm not the greatest public speaker, so I wrote everything down. Um, this is my first time reading through the Bible, and I did do it with three other women on a Zoom call. Um, the two main things that I learned about the Bible are... Uh, the Bible tells one big story where Old and New Testament refer back to each other in so many ways. An example would be the first foretelling of Jesus coming is in Isaiah 53, okay? And then Jesus reciting Old Testament um, verses in the New Testament. The next 
thing that I learned was context and background give a much richer meaning, like where and when the author of the book of the Bible, um, where they lived, what their life's experiences were. Um, an example, the author of First Peter was the same Peter that um, walked with Jesus side by side um, and also denied him. So we know that Peter kind of flies off the cuff. But then he wrote um, very practical truths and, gui- and guidance for how to follow Christ. Um, things that I appreciated um, about doing this in a group setting versus reading on your own. Uh, each person in the group has a different insight and a different, a different set of resources at their disposal. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. And even different translations of the Bible. I think one night, you know, we all were looking at one verse, and it all sounded a little different coming from the different versions of the Bible that we had. Um, and it was interesting because, again, there's four ladies, and each had a different <laughs> translation of the Bible, so that was kind of fun. Um, each group member notices different words or different verses that stick out to them personally, and that allows us to uh, look more closely at those things together during our chats. Uh, for our group, doing Zoom meeting conference calls made it very easy in this phase of life that we have a toddler at home. Um, it was really nice for me specifically just to have the baby monitor next to the Zoom chat. He's asleep. I don't have to worry. Is he getting into trouble? Um, and I could actually focus um, and not have to worry about a babysitter. So it was very convenient for us. And I will say that we met very, very, very often. I think we maybe didn't meet once. And for me personally, I only missed four meetings, and so I was very proud of that because that's like 50-something meetings, Um, or 48 or so. Uh, What we enjoyed as a married couple in doing this is the at-home accountability, kind of like Andy said. I mean, we would sit down to dinner, rush through it really fast, and be like, okay, we're going to go do this. No one's missing it. We're going to make it to the Zoom calls. Um, we're both learning the same things at the same time, but again, we had a little bit of a different perspective coming from different groups, um, so it was kind of fun to uh, sit down and talk about what we learned that week, either from our group, from the Bible, or just insights that we had on our own. Uh, most importantly, in summary, uh, it helped us learn how to handle life's frustrations, I think I've seen. Uh, for example, compared to the big picture of the Bible, um, I felt that it made our problems, day-to-day problems, seem small, but also our God cares about us and our problems. He wants to help us, and he's in control, and he personally knows how it feels. So those are kind of the things that I've actually seen work out in our life. Um, it's given us a lot more of like an eternity focus um, rather than just focusing on our nitty-gritty day-to-day, and that's important. Um, really, the important things are far above and beyond that. Um, And it's allowed us to lean more on God, um, because you see that over and over again in the Bible, people leaning on God. And I think it's given us more patience, um, which is helpful with a toddler and owning a small business. So um, in summary, again, I would definitely recommend this to a friend. I think everybody should do it. I'm going to do it again. I don't know if it will be part of a group, but I'm going to do it again. Hopefully Andy will do it again. Thank you. Real simple, easy to multiply. If you just want to do something like that, um, just let me know and I'll I'll connect you with something. If you say, oh, I want to do it with so-and-so and and you challenge some people to do it, you just just go ahead and do it. That would be wonderful. Just want to do whatever we can do as a church here to 
to, to master the Bible, right? To understand the, the big picture of it, to take the whole story of it, that, that we'd be taught and reproved and corrected and trained in righteousness. Um, if, again, if you got a plan, you got your plan. If you're looking for something else, uh, that would, would be wonderful. Well, my message today is really a supplement to my message last week. Last week I talked about how to master the Bible. This week I want to talk about why to trust the Bible. Um, because I, I think, I think that, that this will kind of help give you some, some, uh, desire then to master the Bible. Uh, because you, you think about it that, um, you, you trust the things, right? You, you, you seek to master the things you trust. So, so for instance, right? Picture this skydiver right here. Um, he trusts his life to his parachute. He's pretty attentive to his parachute, right? Don't you think? I, I think he works hard to master his parachute, understanding well enough how to keep the cords from being entangled and, and knowing exactly how to fold it upright so that when he pulls on the ripcord, the parachute's going to work. He masters his parachute. Or, or, or think about these guys, right? Window washers, the skyscraper. And they entrust their lives to their harness. You, you think they, they know how to master their harness? I mean, I, I think they do. They understand how much, how, how to attach the rope way on high on the building, right? How, how to give some slack and how to move around. They master their harness because their life depends upon it and they take great care in that. Or what about fighter pilots, right? He, he trusts his life to his jet. You, you think he works hard to master the art of flying? I mean, he could easily like, like fly and crash and, and he would be done. But he understands well how the jet performs Make sure he's got enough thrust, knowing exactly how much fuel he has so he can return home after his mission. And so likewise, just with the Bible, right? we entrust our eternal lives to Christ Jesus through what he's taught about in the Bible. Don't you think it would do well for you to master the Bible? It's my thrust this morning, really, just to what, what I want to do, my heart, my message, you'd go away realizing, yes, uh, I, I do trust the Bible, and if I, I trust the Bible with my life, then it would be worthwhile then to master it. And so I, I want to just give you a few reasons this morning of why to trust the Bible. Now, I could approach this a lot of different ways. I, I could look at the reliability of the ancient manuscripts and bore you to tears with the Alexandrinus and the Sinaiticus uh, manuscripts and the variants and stuff. I could do that. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, we could look at the uh, archaeological findings that support the truth of the Bible, where they they found uh, you know different uh, uh, different artifacts from different times in in, in Israel, and I could uh, maybe kind of encourage you with that, but ultimately whatever. Um, we're not going to look at that. I, I could uh, look at the number of prophecies fulfilled in history, and and that's helpful. We're not going to look at that today either, though. I could look at the non-biblical literary support that supports the truthfulness of the Bible, but I'm not going to do that either. All those are worthy of our investigation, and typically when you think about why why should I trust or how to trust the Bible, you might think about those things. But I want to just really look at our spiritual heroes of the faith and see how they looked at the Bible. And as they trusted the Bible, I think it's worthy for us to trust the Bible. So first we're going to look at Jesus. He's a great hero of the faith. Jesus trusted the Bible. You know that? I mean, this may be new to you, but when you say, well, why do you trust the Bible? Well, I believe in Jesus. He's died on the cross for my sins, and I'm reconciled to Him, and I love Him, and I know Him. I'm seeking to walk with Him. And He trusted the Bible. And I want to take you back for this to my very first seminary assignment. I just graduated from college, 22 years old. 
Um, I'm out in California and out in Los Angeles studying the, the Bible, and the uh, first class I take is Theology One with Mark Mueller. And my first assignment was to read chapter one of this book, Inerrancy. And uh, it, it, it's a book basically compiled of a, a bunch of different authors talking about the topic of the, the doctrine of Scripture. And, and chapter one is written by John Wenham. It's called Christ's View of Scripture. And uh, maybe I was impressionable at that point. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe I wanted to get off to a good start. But I really read that chapter and really read it well, soaked it in, and it made a huge impact on me. Because one of the things he said, he says, I'm not even going to assume that the Bible is uh, inerrant or infallible. I'm just going to assume that the Bible just, just um, gives us general, reliable history. And, and with that assumption even, right, he didn't want to have circular reasoning. Oh, the Bible says the Bible trusts it. He just wanted to say, just as long as it gives reliable history, and over and over and over again in those, whatever, 20 pages, he just spoke about Christ's view of Scripture, which is amazing. That Jesus believed the Bible. Now, he believed the Bible not like we do today, because his Bible was only the Old Testament, but he believed the Old Testament thoroughly. He never hinted that it was not true. As Wenham wrote, Jesus consistently treats the Old Testament historical narratives as straightforward records. He believed in a real Abel and Noah and Abraham and Lot and Isaac and Jacob and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and Jonah and Zechariah, mentioning all of these people from the Old Testament as if they were real people. He trusted the Bible. The Bible was true and reliable. He, turned, he spoke of historical events as real events. The institution of circumcision in Genesis 17. He spoke about that as a real event. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone from heaven destroying that city. He spoke of that as a historical event. The giving of manna in the wilderness. The snake in the desert. David eating the consecrated bread. He looked at the Old Testament as reliable history. He trusted it. He spoke of doctrine grounded in historical fact. He spoke and understood marriage to be monogamy from the beginning because man, God made them male and female. He, he said, Moses wrote, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and understands what marriage is because of that. He understood the flood was a precursor to the final judgment. He said this in Luke 17, 26 and 27, just as it was in the day of Noah... So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Just like it's going to be in his re- he return, right? They, they entered the ark. The day they shut the door, the flood started coming. He believed in Noah. He, he contrasted the belief of his day with the Queen of Sheba, the unbelief of those days, right? He, he, he drew the, the terrible consequences. The Queen of the South will rise up at at the judgment with this generation condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of solomon and behold something better than solomon is here he referred to that event in first kings chapter 10 uh, about her coming and seeing solomon being blown away and believing and jesus says now but something's better than solomon and it's right here and you're not even believing but there is the uh, historical event he described jonah he believed jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights just like the Son of Man would be in the, the, the earth three days and three nights. And he said also similarly, the men of Nineveh, he believed that they repented. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
Jesus believed all these events. He trusted the Bible was a, a trustworthy testimony of history. And, and although Jesus brought the gospel to the people of Israel, he never denied the law. Because he believed the law, he, he trusted it, right? He encouraged obedience to the law. Think about this. When speaking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in his day, he said this in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach and they do not practice. In other words, follow the teaching of the law, even if those who teach it are flawed men and are hypocrites. This is so high he lifted the law. He believed it. He believed Moses wrote it. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever lacks relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. His view of the law, he believed the law, he trusted the law, he relied upon the law, but then he brought the gospel, which transformed the law, which fulfilled the law, right? But, but it's not like he said, no, the law, no, that's not really true. No, he, he embraced it as true and real, and that's why when he came to the gospel, when, when he brought good news of the gospel, it was true because the, the law was true. And when he battled with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he didn't claim that his authority was right. Rather, he said, said things like this, that you, you're wrong because you don't know the power of God nor the Scriptures. He said, you don't understand the truth of the Scriptures. That's why you're wrong. He saw the Scriptures as authoritative. And he trusted them as being the written Word of God which must be fulfilled. One of the big themes of Jesus throughout the whole New Testament when you read the Gospels is how aware he was of his own life fulfilling the truthfulness of the Scripture. When preaching in Nazareth from Isaiah 61, he said, Today, the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Understanding, right? The prophecies of the Old Testament are true and real, and they are fulfilled in him. When talking about John the Baptist, he said, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way for you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. In other words, right? He's the preparer. He's the one prophesied. It's right there. And Jesus knew his death was prophesied. In Luke 18, 31 and 32, he told his disciples, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man and the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. See, Jesus knew that the Old Testament prophesied it. Therefore, he knew that he was going to go up and be sacrificed and be killed. And when risen from the dead, he rebuked the men on the road to Emmaus for not trusting the Scriptures. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning himself. Because he trusted the Old Testament. He trusted the Bible of his day. At one point, he even said, the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus trusted the Bible. Not merely as a historical document, but also uh, as a means through which he was able to conquer sin. And I think this is especially um, instructive for us. You can turn over your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Um, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna go to a, a lot of verses in my message today, but Matthew chapter 4, just want you to think about, reflect upon how it is that Jesus used the scripture in his own life to conquer sin. 
You remember, he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. It says this, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He's hungry. He could command this. He could do this. But Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4, He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Quotes from Psalm 91. But Jesus knew the scriptures better than Satan did. And he said this, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Strike two. Verse eight, and again the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and and all his glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Three strikes, you're out. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I just want you to catch how Jesus was trusting the Bible. When temptation came upon him, he used God's word to thwart the devil himself. Every time, it is written, it is written, it is written. I'm trusting what is written more than my experience. He was hungry, he wanted bread. But he trusted his Bible more than he trusted his own stomach. He was not going to be tempted to tempt God, put him to the test in that way. And he knew that God was the only one to be worshipped. Even as much as he wanted the kingdoms of the world, and he got the kingdoms of the world, but it's not through Satan's way, trusting that God's plan is the best plan for him. And and at the end, be gone Satan, and Satan was gone. Now, do you remember, do you notice, right, where he quoted from? I put that there for you on the screen, right? Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6. A- any thoughts on why Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8 was his quotation, why he quoted from there? I don't think it's an accident. He's in the wilderness. I think he's meditating upon the people of Israel while they're in the wilderness. See, I think he mastered, so mastered Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 and probably other chapters in Deuteronomy that when the temptation came, he understood those verses well enough and the context well enough to say, no, I'm going to follow the ways that Israel should have followed. I'm going to follow the ways of God. Jesus trusted the Bible. Uh, John Wenham, he summarized his, his article like this. He said, to Christ, the Old Testament was true authoritative, inspired. To him, the God of the Old Testament was the one living God and the teaching of the Old Testament was the teaching of this living God. To him, what the Scripture said, God said. And I believe that if your faith is in Jesus, then you must view the Scriptures in the same way that Jesus did. Trusting the Scriptures, trusting the Bible. Well, let's, let's move on. Not only did Jesus trust the Bible, but Paul trusted the Bible. And again, that's simply what I want to do. There's so much that we could would cover. In fact, even with Jesus, right? There, there's so many things that we left out that we could have looked at uh, of how Jesus trusted the Bible. And with, with Paul as well. Like, 
tons of things we're going to mess out or leave out, miss out on. But I'm just going to tell you a little bit about just Paul's perspective in terms of the Bible of his day, which was, again, the Old Testament. When he was saved on the road to Damascus, he went instantly into the synagogues and preached Jesus. Now, being a Pharisee, he knew the Bible really well. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 22, it says he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, how can you prove that Jesus is the Christ unless you're going back to the Old Testament, you're going back to your Bible and demonstrating that it's true? He trusted it. And, and what was there came to fruition in Jesus. You remember when Paul came to Pisidian Antioch on his first missionary journey? We looked at this passage a few weeks ago, so I bring it up. And, and Paul came to the synagogue meeting and he preached a sermon right there from the pew. And he just walked his way through the Old Testament. And, and again, just like Jesus, mentioning Abraham, right? Believing that he was a real man who God chose. And believing that the people of Israel were subject to slavery in Egypt. And believing that the people of Israel conquered the land. And that Samuel and Saul and David were real people, just tracing through history. And all this may be subtle, but, but there are many people today who don't trust the Bible. They think it's just full of stories. It's not. The Bible is history. It's to be trusted. These people were real. As Paul carried on in his sermon, he quoted from other portions of Scripture, from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16, demonstrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which must take place because the Scriptures cannot be broken and the Scriptures are true. And that's why he could so boldly look at those in Antioch and say, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Because the Scriptures proclaim it, and it is true and it's real. And he could proclaim this because he trusted the Scriptures. And further, right, Paul's, Paul's um, life and his mission is to the Gentiles. And he went to the Gentiles because he believed the Scriptures, because Isaiah 49, verse 6 is true of the Jews. He says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Paul went to the ends of the earth, and he went out to the Gentiles because he knew the Scripture was true, that the Gentiles were giving us light, the Jews were giving us light to the Gentiles. And as we work our way through Acts, we're going to see more and more Paul reasoning in the synagogue from the scriptures. In Thessalonica, Acts 17, 2 and 3, it says he entered the synagogue and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Everyone's in the Old Testament is prophesying and now it's come true in Jesus. The Old Testament is true. It's fulfilled in Christ. And after Thessalonica, he continued to Berea, where he directed the Jews to the Scriptures to verify his message. And those in Berea examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, see Paul went to the Bible because... He, they, those in Berea went to the Bible because Paul directed them to the Bible. Because Paul trusted the Bible was true. And he was commending them to trust the Bible was true. That's why I, I try to speak, except for this last Sunday and this Sunday expositionally. So you might say, this is what it says. Isn't this true? I want to show you what's true. And Paul, that's, that's what he was doing with the Scriptures. And, and in fact, then if you read through his epistles and how often he goes back to the Scriptures, the Old Testament, it's over and over and over again, even arguing in Galatians 3 on the number of a noun, right? So he, he doesn't say to them seeds as referring to many. He says to them seed. So the difference between seed and seeds makes a difference to Paul such that he view the 
the Old Testament. And, and I, I, I would say this, though. I would say the life of Paul doesn't make sense unless he trusted the Bible. You cannot understand the life of Paul unless you understand that he trusted the Bible. Turn over to Acts 26. I just want to show you what I mean there. Acts 26. Here, we're going to get here in maybe a year or so. As our, we're working through Acts. But in Acts 26, he's got an opportunity to defend himself before King Agrippa. And after explaining everything that happened to him with his conversion on uh, the road to Damascus, we see in Acts 26 and verse 19, he says this. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. So he's just kind of bringing, that's why I'm standing before you today, because they're trying to kill me. And then he says this in verse 22. To this day... I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, look at his ministry, what he said. He says right there, verse 22, Paul was saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said came to pass. So as a preacher, as an evangelist, as a missionary, he viewed his life as trusting the Bible and merely telling people what the Bible says because he trusted the Bible. Paul trusted the Bible. And the life of Paul doesn't make sense unless you understand that he trusted the Bible. Uh, Continue on there in Acts 26. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy to believe these things, right? That's not what the Old Testament says. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, the most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. And then here he says, look at verse 27. King Agrippa Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe, right? Yes, you say you believe, but do you really trust them? Do you really believe them? And here's Paul again going back. It's the prophets that he's trusting that speak then of Jesus and prophesy of Jesus. Then Agrippa said, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I don't want to become a Christian. Are you crazy? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God. That not only you, but also all who hear me this day might be such as I am, except for these chains, because he's, he's imprisoned. But you can't understand Paul unless you understand that he trusted the Old Testament. He trusted the, the Moses, and he trusted the prophets. And we said nothing, right, of, of all the, the times he wrote in his letters, quoting from the Old Testament, believing the Scriptures to be true. And, and Paul simply believed the, the worldview of the Scriptures but Paul also, like Jesus, it's not just that he, he trusted the Bible like to be true. He, he trusted the Bible to be impactful in the lives of people. So you can turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I, I've quoted this verse several times last week and this week that all Scripture is inspired by God. 
And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. But if we go to the two verses before that, just I want you to see how Paul trusted the Bible with, with our lives. Not just trusting it as just this historic document, but really saying it's this historic document that, that can infiltrate and can change us and can help us. Talking to Timothy, he says, Timothy, as for you, continue what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. And that is he learned it from his mother and his grandmother who taught him the scriptures. So continue in the truth of the scriptures, right? Trust what you have learned because the scriptures are trustworthy. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. These might be shocking because the sacred writings he's talking about here, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures... Verse 15, the Old Testament scriptures alone are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Point to Paul's trust in the Bible that even the Old Testament can lead people to believe and trust in Jesus. They might be saved. They might be saved from their sin. That was Paul's belief in the Bible. You can't understand his life unless you understand he believed the Bible. All right, we got a third person. We believed Paul. We looked at Paul. Jesus trusted the Bible. Paul trusted the Bible. Who's next we're going to look at? We're going to look at Peter. Peter trusted the Bible. Right? Again, I take it back to the book of Acts. Let's just think through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2 comes the day of Pentecost. And Peter is there preaching the day of Pentecost. And his sermon essentially is, the Bible's true. The Bible's true and I trust it. Joel 2 was fulfilled in the saying of tongues. And Psalm 16 was true in the resurrection of the dead, Jesus from the dead. And Psalm 110 is true because it places Jesus exalted at the right hand of God. And that's why you need to believe in Christ Jesus, who you put to death. Because God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is the sovereign one. Believe in him. Trust in him. He's the only way you'll have forgiveness of sins. Notice he's grounded in the scripture. And then continuing on, the book of Acts, chapter 3. A crowd gathers after Peter heals a lame beggar. And in his sermon, Peter demonstrates, right, he trusted the Bible. I mean, just, just like um, I mentioned earlier in John Wenham's article, he mentions Abraham. He mentions Isaac and Jacob and Moses by name. And of all the prophets, listen to what he says, Acts chapter 3, verse 18. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, Peter believed the prophets. He trusted that what they prophesied about Jesus was true. Peter trusted the Bible. And, and, and I want to show you how much he trusted the Bible. So turn your Bible to Second Peter. Second Peter. Right, we're going to look at, at chapter 1. We're going to see Peter's trust in the Bible just shine forth. Second Peter 1, uh, verse 16 through 18. Just want to begin there. Just want to read. I put, you on the, I put it on the overhead here for you. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. In other words, right? Peter is saying, right? When, when we followed Jesus, it wasn't just this folklore. It wasn't some made up tradition. It wasn't some Aesop fable. It wasn't just some story. We didn't follow myths. We followed the real deal. He said this. We didn't follow cleverly advised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said this. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What Jesus is talking about here, or what Peter's talking about here, is when, when Jesus went up to the mountain and with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and, and he got up there. And what happened was he began to get white. He began to glow from inside, right? That, that old movie E.T., right? Remember E.T.'s fingers started glowing. Like that's a little bit like what it was. His body started glowing through his skin, through his clothes, and he was a radiant white. And what was happening at that point is the flesh of Jesus veiling his divinity was now being revealed for, for all to see in glory. Not for all, but for Peter, James, and John, and Elijah and Elisha were there. And Elijah and Elisha, I'm sorry, Elijah and Moses were there. And they were talking about Jesus. And they're talking with him about his exodus. That is his, his leaving the earth, his sacrifice upon the cross. And what a glorious thing that's, that's going to be. And then on the mountain, as they saw this Jesus, white as, as, as could be, and, and Moses and Elijah talking, they heard this booming voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, and they saw just this, this whole thing. Peter said, we were there. We saw Jesus transfigured. We heard this voice from heaven. We were with him. It was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful confirmation of our faith. Seeing Jesus in his glory. Hearing from God the Father in heaven. And we might think that Peter might, his message might be, okay, trust my experience. Trust this miraculous appearance that I had on the mountain. But Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, yes, we were with him in all his glory, but we got something that's way better than this miraculous appearance. It's the Scripture. Look what he says, then continuing on in verse 19. He says, And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed. The prophetic word is more fully confirmed than this experience he had on the mountaintop. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, Peter says that the transfiguration was great and all, but you need to pay attention to the prophetic word. That is, you need to pay attention to the scriptures because it's the scriptures that are true and trustworthy. And they are more fully confirmed. And then Peter speaks about the reliability of the Scripture. He says this, knowing first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here's what we have in the Bible. We have, yes, it's written by men, but it's God speaking through men. And it's not men who say, oh, I'm just going to write Scripture today. No, it's God who stirs in the men. He bears them along. And he writes his message through men. And he said, that's more sure and more confirming than our hours that we had upon this mountain that I'm telling you about. We have the more sure prophetic word. We have the Scriptures that, that God wrote as men because God moved them along. It's inspiration. So when, when, when uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that all scriptures God breathed, that's inspired. That's what he's talking about. It's about God moving men to write his word. Do you trust the Bible? Jesus trusts the Bible. Paul trusts the Bible. Peter trusts the Bible. Do you trust the Bible? 
I want to close one last verse here in 2 Peter. Chapter 1 and verse 3. Look what it says. I put it in the overhead. This is like a, a key verse. It says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And this is where we, really the rubber meets the road. Where, where do we really believe the Bible or not? I mean, it's fine that Jesus trusts the Bible. It's fine that Paul trusts the Bible. It's fine that Peter trusted the Bible. But, but do you? It says here in 2 Peter 1.3 that in Jesus Christ, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, Jesus Christ is able to empower us to have all manner of our, our lives and behavior. Jesus is, is sufficient to give us the wisdom to live. He's, he's sufficient to empower us to conquer sin. Do you believe this? If you trust the Bible, you will. Sadly, I will say, though, that many don't. When behavior issues come about, Christians are often quick to get some pills to help their kids calm down. Pills that make you happy. People take pills that make them happy. Pills that help help you go to sleep at night. And I'm not saying there, there aren't physical reasons for behavioral issues. There are physical reasons why, right, when, when people are deprived of sleep. And there's some medicine that can help with that, right? And, and even behavioral issues come about because of physical reasons, right? Deprived of sleep means, makes you more irritable. When, when you're in pain, you lash out more easily. Hormone imbalances have their effect, to, to be sure. But listen, sin is never to be excused. Sin is never to be excused. Right? Peter tells us, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you believe this? That, that the power of Christ within us gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Sadly, many don't. Behavioral issues come and they're quick to seek secular counseling to help their problems. They, they seek the, the advice of someone whose worldview is anti-God to think this is going to help them with their behavioral problems. And, and oh, it may... There are worldly techniques that help calm your anger. Okay, count to ten. So I calm my anger. There are some worldly techniques that help decrease our anxiety, help us cope with, with uh, bitterness. And these are changed behavior which are helpful, but they're, they're just changed behavior. What we want, right? We, we see that my anger, oh, that's a problem for me, right? Not understanding it's an anger before God and being right before God. And not seeking a behavior that conforms to God's word or, or directs us towards godliness. Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So what that says is, right, we abide in Christ, and Christ's divine power gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And we bear much fruit through the power of Jesus. But apart from me, you want to go some other way? He says you can do nothing. Life and godliness, behavior and godliness, Secular counseling might, might have something, but it's apart from Jesus. It's nothing. You might get some changed behavior. A pill might help. But it's nothing. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. If we abide in Him, we bear much fruit. So, church family, I just say this, right? Let us trust the Bible. Let's trust the Bible. Jesus did. Paul did. Peter did. 
Every word of it. And Peter says here in 1 verse 3 that, that the Scriptures, the truth of the Scriptures, what, what leads us into that way. And, and how do you do it? You do it through mastering the Bible. He says, His divine power, chapter 1 verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So how do you get this life and godliness? Through the power of Christ? It's through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And how do you get this knowledge of Him who called us? Our knowledge of God comes from the Bible, what the Bible tells us of God. It tells us of God. Tells of our sin, tells of our Savior, teaches us how to live. And that's why I so want you to master the Bible. And I do believe that if ever you're going to master the Bible, in some regards, you need to start trusting the Bible first and realizing that we're trusting the Bible with our lives. Yes, we need to master the Bible so that our, our eternal life would be firm and secure. So let's read, let's trust the Bible, let's read the Bible, let's master the Bible so the Bible will master us. Oh, Father, I do pray that we would trust the Bible. God, how to trust the Bible? We just need to look to Christ who did and live the perfect life in trusting your word. And we look at Paul, who lived the most transformed life of anybody that we have ever known or witnessed or heard about or read about from a God-hater, persecutor of the church, violent aggressor to the most godly of saints who did the most... Uh, for the world, or Peter, who walked with Christ and was so up and down and yet had these great experiences, and yet he directed us to your word. And so, Father, I know my heart for all of us here at Rock Valley Bible Church is that we would be masters of the Bible. God, that we would know what the Bible says and where it says it and how it says it. Um, Father, not, not, not just to know so we can be intellectually heady, but combine that, God, with, with faith and trust and submission to everything that we know that it would transform us. Even think of, of Courtney's testimony and just the reading through the Bible is just, just all these big swaths of things has helped in sanctification. That's how you work. You work that all Scripture is inspired by you and it's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction and training in righteousness. God, oh, may we be reading the Bible, maybe looking to it and trusting it, not explaining it away. God, not, not trying to invent our own ways God, but really realizing that it's, it's trust in you and what you say that will lead us to life and godliness and security and health and stability in you. God, may we be like trees that are planted by streams of water. God, that yields its fruit in its season. Our leaves, may they not wither. And whatever we do, God, may we prosper because we trust in you and we trust in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.